Welcome to the Stonebridge Community Church online worship service. Today you'll hear the Word of God read, the message from this weekend's in-person service, and two songs to guide you in worship. Thanks for joining us today. This summer we are going through the book of Acts, but really the second half of the book of Acts. Looking at the way the church interacts with different cities, the early church going around from town to town, village to village, city to city, seeing what the Holy Spirit does in each of those places that God brings a church. And today we come back to Jerusalem, where everything started, the, the place where Jesus was uh, murdered and then resurrected just outside with people witnessing it. So I'll be reading from Acts chapter 15, verses 22 through 29. And the entire chapter of Acts 15, it chronicles what's called the Council at Jerusalem. So I invite you to hear the word of God. Then the apostles and the elders, with the consent of the whole church, decided to choose men from among their members and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leaders among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the believers of Gentile origin in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that certain persons who have gone out from us, though with no instructions from us, have said things to disturb you and have unsettled your minds, we have decided unanimously to choose representatives and send them to you, along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to impose on you no further burden than these essentials, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God and please join me in prayer. Lord, you have gathered us this morning so that we can hear your word. You've gathered us so that we can be shaped and formed by your scriptures. You've gathered us so we can lift our voices up to you. Help us to learn from the example of the early church. Help us to learn from the example of those followers who came before us. As they were in the midst of an internal conflict, help us to learn from their example about how they resolved it. That we might do likewise, Lord so that your gospel can be proclaimed throughout this world. Through your Holy Spirit now, teach us. We ask this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's been said that the book of Acts is the gospel of the Holy Spirit. Because really, when you look at the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is the main character. The Holy Spirit is the one who is driving the action who is bringing the church to different places, and the Holy Spirit is working and is active. And the book of Acts has all sorts of dramatic moments where the Holy Spirit is working. There's the famous story of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit descends on the disciples. Tongues of fire descend on them, and they start speaking in tongues. There's a story also where at one point, Philip, one of Jesus' followers, is just whisked up by the Holy Spirit and taken and moved to a completely different location. 
There's scenes where earthquakes take place. And Jesus' followers who are in prison can decide to leave or not, and they decide not to. There's all of these scenes in the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit is working in dramatic ways that seem perfectly suited towards a, a movie or a TV show or something dramatic. And today we're ignoring all of that stuff. And instead we're focusing on a letter. A letter that actually arises from a glorified committee meeting really is what's going on here in Acts chapter 15. Like I said, this is called the Council at Jerusalem. It's about the center of the book of Acts. And what I read was the contents of a letter that was sent out from the early church. This letter, though, and this story, I think they open up our eyes to the fact that the Holy Spirit doesn't always work in dramatic ways. And it's not only in dramatic ways that the Holy Spirit works. Sometimes the Holy Spirit, as we see here in Jerusalem, works in boring, mundane ways, and also works through compromise. Because what's happened here is the church is in the midst of a conflict. The early church has a conflict that is born from a very good problem. The gospel is spreading. And it sounds like that shouldn't be an issue, but early on in the church's first years, they didn't think of themselves as a separate religion from Judaism. We now think of Judaism and Christianity as two distinct religions, but in the early years of the church, they all would have thought of themselves as Jewish people. They still were committed to the God of Israel. They were committed to the law of Moses. They just believed that Jesus was the God of Israel in human form. So as they're spreading this news about Jesus, initially it's only Jewish people that join the church. And it's among the Jewish people that the news spreads. But then the church begins to grow and the gospel spreads. And all of a sudden, Gentiles, which is a fancy word for anyone who is not Jewish, they start wanting to worship Jesus. They start wanting to be part of the church. So a question arises very early on in the history of the church. For Gentile believers, those who didn't grow up with the law of Moses, just how much do they have to follow the law of Moses? Just how Jewish do Gentile believers in Jesus have to become to be part of the church? It might sound like a silly disagreement to us today because I'm guessing all of us, if not all of us, the 99% of us did not grow up Jewish here. So we're in that Gentile camp. So it might sound silly to us. But when you look back at history, a lot of the issues that divided the church look silly to others hundreds of years later. But in their time and in their day, these were important issues. And this issue about the law of Moses and just how much believers in Jesus had to embrace the law of Moses, it wasn't a trivial issue in its day. It was incredibly important. So the church is there debating this question. And in the midst of this conflict, the book, the book of Acts in Acts chapter 15 tells us there's really two distinct groups, two factions, two camps who are arguing with each other. On the one hand, we have 
Christian Pharisees. Now, if you've been in the church for a while, the idea of a Christian Pharisee might sound like an oxymoron to you. It might sound like a contradiction in terms. Because Jesus regularly argues with the Pharisees. Especially in the book of Matthew, which we just looked at, Jesus argues with the Pharisees. He debates with them more than anybody else. He calls them brood of vipers at one point. But what's important to remember is when Jesus is debating with the Pharisees, it's not the fact that they're Pharisees in and of, them, in of itself that bothers him. It's their hypocrisy. He's debating their interpretations of the law of Moses. He's not debating their devotion to the law of Moses. And at other points in the Gospels, Jesus has dinner with Pharisees. He reaches out to Pharisees. His disciples, some of them, are Pharisees. And here in the book of Acts, we learn somebody can be a Christian and a Pharisee. So these Christian Pharisees who are there, who are part of the church, they want Gentile believers to embrace the law of Moses entirely. That's their stance. They want Gentile believers to follow the law of Moses in the same way that they do. And they're pretty hard line about this. On the other hand, though, the other group that we have is Peter, Paul, and Barnabas. Kind of the, the Beatles of the early church, I guess. I always want to say Peter, Paul, and Mary, but I don't think Mary was part of this one. And I've never heard a song by them either, so I'm sorry if that's your favorite band. But Peter, Paul, and Barnabas, they're on a completely different side than the Christian Pharisees. Peter, Paul, and Barnabas have been going around, and they feel appointed to reach out to Gentile believers. And they have seen the Holy Spirit work in dramatic ways, in ways that were unexpected. And all of a sudden, people that the early Jewish believers of the church would never have expected to be part of their community want to follow Jesus. And Peter, Paul, and Barnabas and their whole group are saying, let's make this as easy as possible for them. They don't have to follow the law of Moses, is what they're saying. Those rules are just for people who were born Jewish. They're not for Gentiles. Let's make this as easy as possible for them to join the church. So those are the two sides here in Acts chapter 15. They're the ones who are going back and forth. And the way that the story plays out here says much debate took place. You get the impression that they're going over this for days. And they can't seem to come to an agreement. Again, this might sound like a trivial matter, but in their day, it wasn't. And it only seems trivial to us because of what took place here at the council at Jerusalem. And if you are a Gentile, if you did not grow up Jewish, then the only reason you are here in church right now is because of what took place in Acts chapter 15. What ends up happening here is they debate. They can't come to an agreement. And then somebody named, named James, who is a leader in the Jerusalem church, who's probably Jesus' brother, he steps forward and he says, I have decided. And it's kind of funny because you know that whenever that happens, it wasn't just that James decided this. This was struggle. This was conflict. This was disagreement. This was debate. But James presents a compromise here. And it's very much a compromise. It's what I read in this letter. This letter is the compromise that they came to. On the one hand, 
The Pharisees don't get everything that they want, those Christian Pharisees. And on the other hand, Peter, Paul, and Barnabas, they don't get everything they want either. Everybody leaves here a little unsatisfied. The basic compromise is, here's four things, blood, food that was sacrificed to idols, anything that was strangled, and fornication. Stay away from those four things, and you're going to be okay. That's the instruction to Gentiles. Stay away from just those four things, and you're going to be all right. You can be part of our church. You can be part of our community. That's the compromise they reach. So place yourself in the shoes of the Christian Pharisees. The law of Moses that you have been raised on, that you have devoted your entire life to, which is expansive, which is large, is whittled down to four simple things. There's no way you're going to be happy with that. There's no way that that's going to feel satisfying to you. Put yourself in Peter, Paul, and Barnabas' shoes. The work of the Holy Spirit that you see happening, that you want to encourage, that you want to help spread. Now you have this roadblock. You have these four things you have to place in front of people. Maybe they're not ready for that. And you have to also explain to them, well, the law of Moses is actually important, and here's why. You don't get to move with the speed that you wanted to move with. This is very much a compromise. And it's a compromise that allows the church to move forward so that the gospel can spread. I get a little worried about our world today and the church today and Christians today because you may have noticed this. I don't know if you've seen this, but we're not doing a very good job at compromising these days. Compromise is a bad word. If you compromise on something, you are weak. If you compromise on something, you are giving in, you are caving, you're not standing strong. But the reality is compromise is not a bad word. Compromise is not always bad. In fact, sometimes compromise is necessary. And in the midst of disagreements, in the midst of debate and dialogue, we have to figure out what is important to us and what is essential Those are two different ideas, two different things. And one of the things that I think Christians have forgotten is the distinction between important and essential. That day at the council at Jerusalem, the early church decided the law of Moses was important. It wasn't something that was unimportant. It wasn't trivial. It wasn't something that should just be discarded, but it was also not essential. Important means important. I think that's the most profound thing I've ever said. Write that down. That's actually one of the worst things I've ever said. But what I mean by that is important does not mean trivial. It doesn't mean that it's unnecessary. It doesn't mean that it can be be discarded. But it also doesn't put something in the category of being essential. Essential means it is of the very essence Whatever it is you're talking about, if something is essential to it, it cannot exist without that trait. And Christians, for thousands of years now, have debated what is actually essential to the Christian faith and what isn't. And different traditions will disagree on that. In the Reformed tradition, which I find myself, and Stonebridge is a Presbyterian church, which means Reformed, John Calvin is an influential theologian, and he laid out three essentials to the Christian faith. 
Basically, John Calvin said, these are the three things that if these are present, we are talking about Christian faith. The first of those was the Trinity. The idea that God is three in one, one in three. Because with the Trinity, if we don't uphold that, then our ideas of salvation fall apart. John Calvin also said that the idea that God saves us, we don't save ourselves, we can't earn salvation, that was essential also. Grace is essential to Christian faith. And then centrally, Calvin said that the life and work of Jesus, especially the resurrection of Jesus, were essential to Christian faith. Those three ideas got put into the category of essential. And we don't get to just move other ideas in and out of being essential or not. Though the church has tried to do that. I feel like those categories, essential, important, understanding the distinction, it's helpful for us because when it comes to essentials, we can't compromise. There's no compromise with essentials. If you ask me if the resurrection of Jesus is a myth or a story or a piece of literature, I will say no. And if you think that, that isn't actually Christian faith. The resurrection happened. It is a historical fact. It is the hope of the world. It is something that actually took place in history. It is the way that God worked to redeem all things. That's essential to Christian faith. But there's a lot more room in the important categories for compromise than I think we understand. And so many issues that are dividing the church today, they might be important. I'm not saying they're unimportant. I'm not saying they're trivial. But they aren't essential and there is room for compromise. I think a lot of us have lost that. But here in the book of Acts, we see the church compromising, determining what is essential, what isn't. And they're doing that not because they're weak, not because they're not strong. They're doing that because the essentials are so important that sometimes you have to compromise to make sure the gospel is spread. They're compromising with each other to the point that this letter tells us they eventually came to a unanimous decision. They all agreed that the spread of the gospel, the spread of the news of Jesus' resurrection was more important than the law of Moses. They all came to that agreement so that the church could grow, so that people could understand the hope that they had in Jesus. And this leaves me with a couple of questions that haunt me. And I don't use that word lightly. It actually does really haunt me. I wonder a couple of what ifs. What if... The council at Jerusalem never happened, and the church wasn't able to come to a compromise. What if Peter, Paul, and Barnabas said, no, we're going to ignore the law of Moses, and the church loses its roots in the Old Testament? It begins to completely ignore God's revelation to Israel. And all of a sudden, Peter, Paul, and Barnabas, they start their own denomination, they start their own church. And now they're arguing with the church they used to be a part of, as well as the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities. What happens to the message of the gospel if they don't compromise there? But more specifically for each and every one of us, what happens if the Christian Pharisees don't compromise in the council at Jerusalem? What happens is if you're a Gentile, and if they had won, and if they hadn't compromised, you're not here right now. You're not part of the church. We exist today because of the compromise that took place at the council at Jerusalem. 
But what if they hadn't come to this conclusion? And then the second question that haunts me is what if we don't learn to compromise better? What if the church today stays as divided or becomes even more increasingly divided? Look around at how many different denominations we have. And then look around also at the new denominations that are being born every single day, largely today based more on political lines than theological lines. What if that continues? What kind of church are we handing future generations? How does the gospel spread if we mistake important for essential and the churches become defined by their politics and not by the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead? What if we don't learn to compromise better? And then the last question that this Council of Jerusalem raises for me is a simple one to me and to each and every one of us. Do you want to be part of the Holy Spirit's work? Remember, the book of Acts is about the work of the Holy Spirit. And this may not look like it's the Holy Spirit's work. The fact that this big debate takes place, that people are arguing, that they're going back and forth, and then they have this letter that they send out. That's not the way I think most of us think the Holy Spirit works. But in this letter, they specifically attributed what they've done to the work of the Holy Spirit. They said, for it has seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the Holy Spirit is working in the midst of compromise, in the midst of debate and dialogue. And it's on us as human beings to recognize the simple truth that we don't have everything figured out. You might believe something passionately. You might hold a position very passionately, but that does not mean that you are correct. And being a part of the church, being one of Jesus' followers, it requires humility. The humility displayed there at the council at Jerusalem where all of these passionate leaders who had causes that they supported said, maybe we're wrong and the gospel is more important than the law of Moses. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit so the church can move forward, so the gospel can spread, so more people can learn about the resurrection. So do you want to be part of the Holy Spirit's work? If so, expand your understanding of how the Spirit can work in your life. You may have dramatic moments. The Spirit may work miracles in your life. But the Spirit may also work with the people you disagree with, the people who frustrate you, that you're in arguments with, that you're in debates with. The two of you working through a compromise together, that is the Holy Spirit's work oftentimes also. So I don't know what it is God may ask you to compromise on. I don't know what it is God may ask you to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel, what beliefs you might have to nuance or massage or even set aside. That's up to you and to the Holy Spirit. But be open to the challenge. Be open to the fact that the Holy Spirit may want you to compromise on something. And listen to Christian brothers and sisters that you disagree with. Learn from them. Grow together. And may we all be part of the Holy Spirit's work so that more and more people can understand that Jesus was raised from the dead and that that is the hope of the world. Please pray with me. Lord, on that day, well, those days at the Council of Jerusalem, your people gathered, your church gathered, and they came to an agreement. They sacrificed convictions that they had for the sake of your gospel spreading. 
They sacrificed important beliefs that they were passionate about so that more people could understand that Jesus was raised from the dead, that you overcame death. Help us to follow their example. Help us to embrace the humility that you call your disciples to embrace, Lord. Help us to find ways we can compromise so that your gospel can spread.
Once torn and beaten Left without reason To move on Then you reached down and brought me the one that rescues me. You rescue me. Oh, oh. you are the God that saves. And you call me from the grave. You rescue me. Ransomed out of the the one 